I'm Ben Myers, Associate Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. On this edition of the podcast, we're dropping in on an expert legal panel on hot topics in blockchain and cryptocurrency. We're going to join our panel partway through their conversation on the regulatory environment and how it relates to cryptocurrency and blockchain. And that's going to be followed by a discussion on how attorneys can educate themselves to be proficient in this area. This is presented by our online graduate program. So check the show notes for more information about how you can advance your career in this area. Before we get to it, though, our reminders, as always, at the top of the show, albanylaw.edu slash COVID-19. Just make sure you're up to date on all of our policies. Follow us on social media for the day-to-day here at the Law School, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And if you like this episode of the podcast, you want to hear more, you can go to our SoundCloud account or subscribe on any of the major podcast services. Enough from me. Let's hand it over to our experts in blockchain and cryptocurrency. to spend a little time talking about uh, the regulatory platforms and the regulators um, as this is um, part of Albany Law School's program and we we do suspect there's quite a few people interested in the regulatory aspects of uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain. So uh, Robert, we're going to start with you. Could you tell us um, a little bit about the the initial background on both the IRS and and the CFTC as it relates to uh, uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain? Sure. Um, I'll start with the CFTC. So, as I mentioned before, you know, we have this interesting regulatory environment. We've got four agencies that define cryptocurrency type products in four different ways. So the CFTC um, defines cryptocurrencies as commodities uh, subject to CFTC regulations. Now, the CFTC does not uh, typically regulate the spot markets and commodities. Instead, they're more focused on derivative type pro- uh, uh, derivative type products. Um, in one example and one of the more uh, common ones that the CFTC has been focused on are Bitcoin futures products or other cryptocurrency futures type products. And so um, to that end, the CFTC has brought numerous enforcement actions um, against exchanges uh, and other entities that are offering um, products tied to cryptocurrencies, uh, futures, options, other products of that nature, uh, margin trading, things like that. Uh, without having registered with applicable entities uh, and organizations, without having applicable applicable reg- registrations uh, pursuant to CFTC regulations, and so um, we've actually seen this most uh, re- recently. We've seen this mostly um, with CFTC enforcement actions against foreign-based entities that are offering products to U.S. customers, um, and that for for various reasons. Um, don't have the applicable registrations. And so we've seen um, sort of the international reach of the CFTC as they've come to uh, a couple different high dollar value settlements against um, cryptocurrency exchange platforms that are offering products uh, that the CFTC deems to be uh, under its jurisdiction as a commodities regulator. Um, with the IRS, um, as I mentioned, the IRS considers cryptocurrencies to be property. Uh, and so that means uh, when you receive Cryptocurrency, you've got to record your uh, your basis in, in, upon receipt of that property, and when you sell it, you have to calculate your gain or loss and report your taxes accordingly. Um, the IRS has been uh, more and more active, and I think we're going to continue to see them more active uh, in enforcing, uh, specifically against uh, tax evasion. And um, to that end, uh, beginning in 2015 um, and 
2017 and then even more recently, the IRS has gone after um, a couple different exchanges, some of the larger exchanges in the US, seeking records uh, from customers at those exchanges through what are called John Doe summonses, uh, which essentially allow the IRS to gain um, access to uh, records within certain parameters approved by a court uh, so that they can analyze those records uh, to identify potential tax evasion. And I think we're going to continue to see um, that type of activity going forward. Um, the IRS has also uh, reportedly issued tens of thousands of notice letters to folks that um, they believe to be in, in, um, in violation of tax laws related to their cryptocurrency holdings and investments. Um, and so, you know, a notice letter like that is sort of encouraging that that taxpayer to come forth and um, and get right with the IRS before they bring uh, more an enforcement action against that individual. And the IRS has actually um, issued some some pretty sophisticated guidance in this area addressing uh, events like hard forks, which is where uh, one blockchain essentially splits into two. Uh, and when that happens, a lot oftentimes a new cryptocurrency is created, and so they've addressed the tax implications of events like that. They've also addressed the tax, tax implications of events like um, earning cryptocurrencies uh, through web-based applications, and, um, and those, those transactions are generally also taxable. So, um, you know, the IRS is typically um, interested in um, enforcement and making sure people pay their taxes. And, you know, I think last year, most of us probably noticed uh, there was a question on uh, the 1040 form uh, related to whether you um, have purchased cryptocurrencies that year or own them, I, I forget the exact language. Um, I think I, I expect that we'll see uh, that that question or some iteration of it um, on 1040s going forward. And so these are all signs that um, you know the IRS is is more and more focused on making sure people pay their taxes related to the cryptocurrency industry. And that's actually a sign that the market is maturing, uh, frankly. So I think you know overall, uh, this is a very good sign, and it's a sign that the market is mature, continuing to mature, and that uh, the market is resilient, frankly. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I actually am going to ask you to continue, Robert, if you don't mind, on the topic of um, uh, Bank Secrecy Act, BSA, um, AML, um, and FinCEN. So can you move on to the, the next type of uh, regulatory body? Sure. So as I mentioned, um, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is an arm of the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, their job is to enforce the Bank Secrecy Act. Bank Secrecy Act is uh, the anti-money laundering law that we have in the U.S. that protects us uh, against uh, criminals using the financial system to launder money. Um, and in, in general, um, FinCEN has defined from, as actually they were their, the very first regulator to issue guidance related to cryptocurrencies way back in 2013, uh, where they defined cryptocurrencies as money uh, for purposes of the Bank Secrecy Act. And uh, they defined the different types of entities uh, in that initial set of guidance that they, and how they would regulate those entities um, under the BSA and FinCEN regulations. Um, the key definitions from that first set of guidance um, are really relate to who is and who is not what's called a money services business. And it's an important distinction because if you are deemed to be a money services business or an MSB, then you are treated essentially uh, very similar to a bank in terms of your anti-money laundering obligations, which means that you have to have an anti-money laundering compliance program, appoint um, a BSA officer to oversee that program, have ongoing training, periodic independent testing, a whole bunch of um, very hefty compliance obligations that are all targeted toward uh, making sure that criminals don't use the financial system to launder money. 
uh, and engage in other illicit activities. And so FinCEN in its first set of guidance um, defined um, what's called, what are now called uh, an exchanger or in that guidance was called an exchanger of virtual currency. Uh, and that is someone that uh, essentially facilitates the, the exchange of cryptocurrencies on behalf of another person. And so um, these, you know, the, very simply these days, um, we have uh, a pretty robust cryptocurrency exchange market in the US. Uh, these are businesses where you can go and exchange your US dollars for cryptocurrency and vice versa. And cryptocurrency exchanges are typically going to be considered, or in almost all, every case, going to be considered uh, an exchanger and, and therefore a money services business that has to has, have an AML program. Um, back in, in that first set of guidance, FinCEN also defined what's called an administrator, which is someone that creates and issues their own cryptocurrency. Uh, and in general, uh, administrators will also be deemed to be MSBs. And then they also defined um, two types of persons who would not be considered money services business. The first are users, so just a, a person who is using uh, virtual currency or cryptocurrency to purchase goods or services or you know, use it on their own account would not be considered an MSB. And uh, later in uh, the following year, they, they issued a, uh, an administrative ruling finding that uh, a minor of the virtual currencies would also not be considered an MSB. And that's important because uh, the mining industry really is sort of um, you know, the linchpin that underpins blockchain networks. And so you know, FinCEN has found that miners would not be considered MSBs. More recently, um, in 2019, um, FinCEN issued new guidance uh, that really um, provides a pretty comprehensive uh, set of guidance covering a host of different um, activities in the cryptocurrency uh, industry, things like um, hosted cryptocurrency wallets, peer-to-peer -peer exchangers, uh, cryptocurrency ATMs, um, anonymizing service providers, um, cryptocurrency payment processors, um, developers of distributed applications, um, um, providers of privacy coins, um, ICO issuers, cryptocurrency mining pools. These are just some examples of the different types of businesses that FinCEN address in its 2019 guidance. And that guidance goes through each of these categories of business uh, and provides an analysis that, um, that uh, the industry can use to determine whether or not that type of business activity would be considered an MSB or not. And again, that's a critical distinction uh, because if you are an MSB, you have to register with FinCEN, you have to have an, um, an AML program, which is a, a, a very serious um, and, and, and big undertaking. Uh, and if you're not an MSB, you don't have to have those. So it's, it's critical for any business operating in this industry to understand FinCEN guidance, and in particular to understand if their business activity uh, puts them within the definition of a money services business or not. Thank you. Um, Pratt, we want to talk about um, just generally, I think we, we, we just went through a bunch of um, agencies uh, federally. And can you tell us a little bit about the federal versus the state um, overarching regulatory scheme in this particular schema, I guess I should say in this particular area? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there, are, there are so many regulators. Uh, I think audience members' heads are probably spinning at this point. Um, but let me let me talk about a couple a uh, couple in the banking and consumer protection space. So for, for those who aren't familiar with banking law, uh, US, the US banking system is essentially a, what's called a dual banking system. One has a choice whether they form a bank under state law or federal law. So there, there's inherently a bit of an arbitrage and different pathway to do that. And as Kayvon mentioned, a lot of the use cases and applications of cryptocurrency are increasingly becoming bank-like, 
And so there's a fundamental question, depending on what one's doing, whether that's lending or taking custody of tokens, moving them from person to person or person to place, uh, or just safekeeping them, whether that fundamental activity is a banking one. And um, that then implicates how one actually goes about their business. Are they doing it federally under a federal banking power, or are they doing it under a state power? And it turns out that other than deposit taking a fiat currency, many of these functions, lending and payments, are not actually regulated under a comprehensive federal regime, uh, unlike the, the broad sweeping AML regulation from a licensing perspective, whether you're a licensed lender or a licensed payment processor, that's all regulated in the U.S. under state law. And so a lot of the use cases of cryptocurrency will actually be swept into a state law regime whereby the state banking regulators or credit regulators of each of the different states uh, have jurisdiction. Separately, a lot of use cases in crypto have direct customer-facing applications. Um, maybe the, the lending product is, is not a business-to-business -business lending, but it's a consumer lending product. Or the custodial product is safekeeping crypto for users as opposed to businesses. There's also a dual regime, both at the federal level from a consumer protection standpoint with a couple different agencies. Uh, one, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that concerns itself with consumer financial products, uh, as well as a generic industry regulator, the Federal Trade Commission, uh, that will go after payments or other technology companies uh, within its jurisdiction that looks at consumer protection from a federal perspective. But then you have also the state overlay and, of course, state attorneys generals, state banking regulators, uh, and under a patchwork of a variety of IP and trademark laws and other consumer protection regimes uh, exist a state-by-state -state consumer protection regime. So um, yet again, we have this patchwork approach where while there are federal regulators and federal regulations, every state has its own regulatory regime. And that uh, you know, leads to a structural uh, implication in that oftentimes clients would, will ask, you know, what, what's the best state to locate in? Where should we headquarter our business to have the, the least burdensome approach to building out a business? And, the, and it's a little bit of an incomplete question in the way it's framed because these regulations don't just apply to where one headquarters their operations or where their engineers are based or where they decide to um, you know, house their CEO or operations. Uh, oftentimes with consumer protection regulation or all of these different licensing regimes, the important question is not necessarily where you're based, but where your customers are based and where you extend yourself economically into. So if you're a California company, if you're doing business in all 50 states, then all 50 state laws will be relevant to you, not just California or your home state. Yeah, great point. Um, one more thing we really, really should touch upon um, is the SEC. So uh, with that, Yev, um, perhaps you could tell us what constitutes a security when it comes to crypto? Well, if I can certainly tell you what constitutes a security when it comes to crypto, I, uh, I'd probably be retired. <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, it's, um, it's definitely you know, regulatory patchwork and a lot of regulatory scaffolding um, in determining on the on the SEC side as well, 
as to as to what constitutes a security or not. But if you look kind of at the classic Howey test and the Reeves test, um, I think that is really your starting point. Um, but there's no, as it has been said, there's no one dispositive fact which you can rely on in, in, in kind of determining whether something is a security or not. Um, I know that Gensler recently came out to say that the kind of the continuum um, that has been recently been talked about, uh, kind of about the the morphing of a from a security into a commodity um, is probably not going to be around for for very much longer. But that's really been relied on by a lot of projects and um, and the decentralized community at large. So, yeah, I, I don't have a very clear answer, but I would say um, in in my practice, I really relied just on what's been public information um, following kind of the, the turnkey jet decision, following what's happening with Ripple, the Ripple case at the moment, and um, just drawing analogies on, on what we know as really the safest um, type of counsel. Thank you. Yeah. If I, if I could jump in, because I deal with the SEC on these sort of issues pretty regularly. And there are, yeah, as you said, there's no, you know, that's right, there's no, one test it's very facts and circumstances based you know the baseline and where this sort of i think it's helpful to sort of look at where the sec got started in this and then you know what some of its concerns are to, to understand what some of the tension is in and how they're defining security um so the definition of security in the securities laws there's an, an enumerated list a specific list of things like a note a bond you know things like that that we all think of as a security and none of those is a cryptocurrency token, of course, because these laws were, were written back in the 30s. But there are some big catch-all categories that, that are included in the definition. And the one that has been used primarily in this area is an investment contract, which has been interpreted to be any investment contract or scheme. The idea here is if you enter into what is you know, effectively an economic relationship that looks like a securities type transaction or scheme, it's going to be a security. And the the, uh, the courts and the SEC use a test called the Howey test. It's now 75 some years old that basically asks a few key questions. Like, is this an investment of money in some sort of common enterprise with the expectation of profits based on the work of others? Which is, you know, is there some core team that's gonna go out and do something with your money? You're just gonna sit back and passively invest and expect to end up with more um, because of your investment. And if it looks like that, it's a security. Um, at least according to the SEC. Uh, the difficulty that they have is that the Howey test, which originally you know, evolved out of a, an investment scheme where you could invest in an orange grove and the, the person who was selling the investments would essentially manage the orange grove and you would reap part of the profits. And that test has been used for a lot of other things. It's been used to look at whiskey barrel investments and investments in beavers, all sorts of things. The, the thing that they tend to have in common is that the, the object that you're investing around is not itself a security. If what you have is actually a certificate that represents ownership in a company and voting rights and is, looks like an actual security, it's easy, that's on the list. It, what Howie is used for is all these things where you come up with an investment scheme built around something that isn't obviously a security. And so you have to look at the, all the facts and circumstances to decide when you say you're selling participation in an orange grove, are you really selling an investment in some common enterprise where you're putting your money with somebody else so they go do something and generate a return? Um, 
the problem with that is, of course, when you invest in an orange grove, the investment scheme might be a security. For, an, for digital assets, the initial coin offering, the actual offering might be a securities offering. But the orange grove, the oranges are not securities. The whiskey barrels at the center of a whiskey investment scheme, the whiskey is not a security. You can drink the whiskey. Okay, that's not a security, even if you build an investment scheme around it. And the entire Howey test is designed to evaluate a transaction or a scheme, not an actual object or instrument. And the SEC wants to say that it's not just the offering of these tokens that is a securities offering. They want to say that the token itself is a security. But they're using a test that is designed to evaluate a transaction or scheme built around something that's not a security. And that leads to a fundamental tension in how they're doing this. So they've come up with concepts that maybe the token represents the offering, but then it could morph to not be a security at some later time if it no longer represents the offering. Or, and they're sort of turning themselves in circles to try to square this, this problem of you using a test designed for a transaction to actually say the instrument itself is, is a security. And the re part of the reason they're doing that is they want to regulate this whole industry. If the token isn't a security, then, or let me start the other way, if the token is a security, then the exchanges where you can buy and sell them, the trading platforms, are essentially securities exchanges because they're giving you somewhere to buy and sell securities. Then all of those come within the SEC regulatory scheme as well. If the offering of the token initially was a securities offering, but the token itself isn't a security, then it's not clear that the platforms where you can trade the tokens are securities exchanges or trading platforms. So then maybe those don't fall within the SEC's reach. We know the SEC wants all of those trading platforms and exchanges to be considered securities exchanges that have to register. But in order to do that, they sort of have to get to the token itself being a security. And that's what's leading to this tension of you know, how they're applying these tests and, and whether they're saying it's just the offering that's a security or the token itself uh, and the like. Right. You know, it, we, we definitely could do an entire webinar again on this topic as well. So, um, Kayvon, you seem to be the one that's, um, to get, we're, we're giving you some full webinars that we materially want, we want you to give us in 30 mm -hmm. seconds. So thank you for, uh, yep. for telling us a little bit more about that. Um, one of the things is we have a few minutes left, and as we have uh, a lot of lawyers and law students on uh, the webinar, we would like to talk a little bit about what do blockchain and cryptocurrency lawyers do? So what's the whole concept? So rather than, um, I think we're just, I'm just gonna go around to each one of you and let's start with just that one question first is, how would you define what a, a blockchain or cryptocurrency lawyer does? Um, so starting with Robert. So the way I like to describe my practice is that um, blockchain is, is sort of an adjunct legal practice. Um, and what I mean, mean by that is that no legal issue involves just blockchain. It always involves blockchain plus one or two or even three or four traditional legal practice areas combined with nuances related to this new technology. And so, um, you know, my work is very much an adjunct practice in that sense in that I deal with a lot of different traditional practice areas uh, things like data privacy and security, tax, securities laws, anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act compliance, um, asset tracing and recovery, um, even tech transactions, we're seeing it come up more and more, patents, patent prosecution. Um, and so I'm always working with um, experts in some of these traditional fields. And my role is to educate 
those experts in the technology and sort of legal environment around the technology as they help uh, with and bring kind of their, their deep expertise um, to the table to solve a specific client issue. And then another thing that I do a lot of is sort of coordinating amongst different experts uh, to come up with solutions uh, that involve more than one legal practice area. And most of the time, um, clients in this space have needs that involve two, three, four different sort of traditional practice areas combined. Thank you, Robert. Frat, how about you? What do you, how do you, how would you talk about what a blockchain or cryptocurrency does? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a great question, Debbie, one of my favorites. Um, I, the, one of the reasons I like that question is because my answer probably changes every six months um, as the, the industry also evolves. Um, you know, I think one of the comments we made before is that there is yet to exist the comprehensive sweeping sort of federal landscape for cryptocurrencies. And so really, you know, as, as Robert was mentioning, the use cases will drive what area of law is relevant. And so if, if a founder, let's say, wants to apply cryptocurrencies to a custodial and payments type of application, then traditional laws around custody and payments become relevant. And it, of course, requires knowledge in that area versus if one wants to use tokens in a capital raising type of context, they might fall within the securities realms, et cetera. That has for a long, long time been true. However, that is no longer completely true as regimes have emerged. You know, New York State is a really good example of a jurisdiction which has created a native cryptocurrency law, the so-called Bitcoin law. And one could have a specialty focusing on just that law. And increasingly, various states, I think we mentioned, um, have created legal personhood around native blockchain concepts. And uh, aspects of other laws like the UCC, um, payments, banking, et cetera, increasingly are creating interpretations and guidance letters that are inherently natively blockchain. And so they're all growing out of these other core competency areas, whether they're securities or banking or payments or derivatives or commodities. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I would encourage folks to focus on developing core legal skills, drafting, negotiating, litigating, whatever you do, and let your clients take you sort of into the industry that you want to get into, whether that's blockchain or anything else. Uh, but at the, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, you will be hired for core legal skills first and sort of industry knowledge second, uh, as opposed to sort of leading with industry knowledge without having those core underlying legal skills. Very good point. Absolutely. So, yeah, how about you? What what um, what can you add to what a blockchain or cryptocurrency lawyer does? Yeah, I mean, I think Robert and Pratt did a, a really good job um, in in their descriptions and I couldn't agree more. I guess I would just add that um, I I really like to kind of roll up my sleeves and get into the 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 technology aspects of what I practice. Um, so you know joining a DAO, purchasing crypto, whether on a centralized or a decentralized exchange, and seeing really how the kind of the mechanics of all of this work as I'm I'm speaking to clients. Um, something that we are doing uh, with my firm that's pretty kind of pioneering um, the, the corporate formation space is that we 
are trying to find the appropriate kind of legal wrappers for DAOs. So we are pioneering DAO co cooperatives um, and aligning those principles and housing them in, in co-ops, which is, is pretty new and um, attracting a lot of attention. So it's all of what Pratt and Robert said, and it's also um, a lot of kind of ingenuity and, 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 and being kind of open to, to not understanding anything your clients are saying because it changes a mile of like a, a second or a block or you know however you want to term it but um yeah I guess yeah so Kayvon a kind of building upon that of course if you can you can add to anything that we that we may, may have missed but um can you tell us about your career path in in becoming an expert in this field in the in the blockchain and crypto field as a lawyer Sure, and I, and I think it echoes what everybody else has said, which is you have to, first you have to be a lawyer to become a blockchain lawyer, and so you have to develop a core competency first, um, and then you can apply it to this industry or, or to other industries. I think that's really the best way to work it. So I've been doing litigation and investigations for, um, you know, close to 15 years, you know, largely in the securities financial markets area um, before I got into blockchain. I got into blockchain late 2016, and that's when I sort of went down the rabbit hole, so to speak, uh, really getting involved in this technology. And as people in the industry started really focusing on what the SEC was doing in 2017, I was sort of in a natural place to help advise people because there weren't regulations. And I think that's the other thing about what it means to be a blockchain lawyer. You have to be comfortable with a degree of uncertainty because there aren't clear rules of the road. It's evolving very quickly. And so it's hard to give guidance with the clarity that we're, as lawyers, we're used to having around more established areas. But in that space, you know, people were starting to look at the SEC. SEC was regulating by enforcement. They were announcing what they thought by putting out enforcement actions. And everybody was supposed to read them and understand what that meant for other projects. And those of us who'd been dealing with SEC enforcement for, you know, a decade or more, had a better read on what the enforcement actions meant and what to take from them than people who hadn't. So that's sort of how I got into the space. I had a programming background before I was a lawyer, so that that helped. I wasn't scared to actually read the code. And I agree, you've sort of got to get your hands in, understand what's happening. Um, and there are various levels of doing that. Um, but, but I think that helps a lot. And then, you know, I think as you progress in the space, it becomes a, an area of focus just because it's evolving so fast. And it really becomes a full-time job just to keep pace with what's happening in the space so that you know what developments are right, are relevant uh, to different people. And you can sort of you know, talk the talk and understand what's happening in the industry. Because you know, I think in 2017, clients were willing to pay lawyers who they knew were smart subject matter experts to learn, their, learn what blockchain was so they could get advice. I think more and more now clients expect that they can find a lawyer who already understands blockchain and they shouldn't be paying for that 101 the same way. And so you sort of need a combination of the expertise plus already understanding the industry. So thank you all for participating today. I think we covered a lot of different material in a short period of time. Hopefully we gave you um, some things to think about um, when it comes to blockchain, cryptocurrency, and law and some of the hot topics of today. Um, so I'm going to uh, hand it back to Tom to close our program. And again, thank you to our panelists. Thank you so much, Debbie and, and everybody. Before we do have just a couple more minutes. So I wanted to recognize Barbara's um, post in the chat. If folks want to call out resources, she says resource documents for us to review to assess compliance 
risks for blockchain, but what uh, websites or, or organizations might you point people to? Um, I, I can jump in. The, you know, when it comes to the SEC, the SEC has put up a website that tracks all of their enforcement actions in this space. So you can really see how that has evolved and sort of look back at, at all of them. And that, that's a helpful resource, uh, I think, from that point. Each of the agencies has their guidance posted pretty prominently you know, as far as, as far as that sort of direct resource. Um, and then there are, there are a number of the sort of publications in the space that have created pretty good resources just to understand the technology and some of the other issues around it. Um, you know, Coin Center comes to mind, um, that, but there, there are plenty of them um, that, that have created those sort of, um, those sort of resources. And, and Tom, I'll, I'll add that I, I put in the chat the link to the weekly blog that I curate and edit uh, for my law firm. It's called the Blockchain Monitor. And what I do with that blog is I, I have my own methods that I've been using to track this industry for almost a decade now. And I uh, have a blog that we post every Friday where I, I take you know what I believe are kind of the most relevant developments. And I have a whole team of folks at the firm that I work with to package those up in concise blogs and we provide links to the source documents. Uh, you can sign up and you'll get it in your email inbox every Saturday morning, or you can just go to the website um, that I put in the chat uh, to find the most recent blogs. Uh, so that's, a, that's, that's sort of um, uh, a free resource that, that me and my firm offer uh, to the industry. Wonderful, and I see uh, Yev has added one, a couple there too. So thank you very much for that. Any, any other, Pratt, anything? Um, no, no quick, easy resources, but maybe, maybe I should give a shout out to Debbie's class herself. <laughs> I'm sure that's, that's great. And, and if, I'm sure if people want a more in-depth, you know, structured approach to, to blockchain, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good, good place to look. That's well. exactly right. And I was going to say, in addition to thanking you all for your brilliance in this, in this space and for sharing this, um, I guess I would say point in time update on where things stand. We know that it's rapidly changing. Um, we welcome you, Albany Law School welcomes any of you back at any time um, to do updates. And Debbie Hoffman herself, Professor Hoffman will be reteaching her course, which of course she will need to revise every year she teaches it, I'm sure. Um, and if we don't see you on other webinars panelists, we will see you as some of you as guest speakers in her course, because I happen to know that you appear there too. So um, if anyone in the crowd has any interest in learning more about the programming at Albany Law School, please do reach out to us. And thank you again for Professor Hoffman and her colleagues, today's amazing panel. And we will, uh, we will all see you soon. For now, this concludes today's event. Thanks everybody. <laughs>